listening to a podcast from St. Benedict's Table, a congregation of the Anglican Church of Canada, located in Winnipeg, Manitoba. May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Amen. This reading from the Gospel according to Matthew starts out in a rather straightforward, albeit still challenging way. Jesus has just spoken to the disciples about their need to practice forgiveness and reconciliation in the community. And now Peter asks for a little clarification. So, Jesus, if someone sins against me, breaks my trust, does me harm, fractures our relationship, If someone sins against me, how many times should I offer forgiveness? At this point, I imagine there might have been a bit of a worried pause in Peter. As many as seven times? That's fairly generous, seven times. It's better than our world's three strikes and you're out. Jesus said to him, no, not seven times, but I tell you, 77 times. N.T. Wright calls this a typical bit of Jesus teasing. A way for Jesus to rather vividly make the point that, quote, if you're still counting how many times you've forgiven someone, you're not really forgiving them at all, but simply postponing revenge. What he means, of course, is don't even think about counting, just do it, Peter. This business of forgiveness and reconciliation is meant to be your basic posture. That's what he's saying to Peter. Not a hard and fast set of standards or rules for participation in the kingdom. It's your posture. We're going out of the scorekeeping business here, Peter. Seven is irrelevant now, my friend. Seventy-seven is the new thing. And if you actually score kept up that high, I'd just up it up all over again. Stop counting. It isn't as if Jesus is telling him that he's now condemned to victimhood, living some naive and artificial, oh, forgive and forget, that's going to get him set up to be burned over and over and over again. No, as as Rachel emphasized last Sunday night in her sermon, in one hand we do hold fast to this call to reconciliation and forgiveness. But there are times when that other hand must also be poised to say, but you're not going to hurt me again. You're not going to burn me. In fact, for something so transformational as an actual reconciliation to take place, there needs to be movement that frees that person of fear of being hurt. That's where this parable begins to kick in, in the movement that true forgiveness should bring about. For this reason, Jesus begins his parable, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. As the parable begins to unfold, you realize Jesus is not interested in things like subtlety and character development, 
but rather he's working with big, broad brush strokes. One of the slaves is brought forward, and he's got an unimaginably large debt of 10,000 talents. A single talent in that world was equivalent to 15 years of labor at the average laborer's salary. That's a single talent, meaning that 10,000 talents is actually beyond comprehension. That's broad brush stroke number one. When the slave could not pay, no kidding, When the slave could not pay, his Lord ordered him to be sold, together with his wife and children and all his possessions and payment to be made. Not that a few slaves being sold, his wife and children and he himself, along with their possessions, would come even close to a single talent. But Jesus isn't trying to make the story particularly realistic. He's interested in those big, broad strokes. It just sets up the next part of the piece in which the slave falls to his knees and begs for leniency. Have patience with me, the slave pleads. Have patience and I will pay you everything. Though he couldn't even begin to touch the level of debt that Jesus says he owed... He doesn't beg for mercy, he begs for patience, for more time to try to rearrange the proverbial deck chairs on his financial Titanic, I suppose. Out of pity for him, though, Jesus says, the Lord of that slave released him and forgave him his debt. Now, they're actually at cross purposes here this king and this slave. The king is working out of pity, and he's forgiven the debt. He's looked at the slave's desperation and basically said, oh, nuts, like this is beyond ever balancing. Forget it. The king in this parable goes out of the bookkeeping business. Meanwhile, The slave is actually still trying to be a bookkeeper. One who feels as if by some miracle he's just won what amounts to the biggest lottery in all of time in history, but he's still a bookkeeper all the same. What did he ask for? Patience, I'll pay. He's still convinced somehow he might be able to. Though he's just had that debt forgiven, he's still quite committed to bottom lines and bank accounts, which is evidenced by what he does next. As he went out, Jesus says. In other words, right on the heels of that great lottery win, as he's going down the steps of the royal palace, he came upon one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. Now, a hundred denarii isn't nothing. Denarius was a wage for a single day's labor. So a hundred is a hundred days' labor. it's, It's a bit of a chunk, but it's not impossible. And it's not unimaginable in the way that 10,000 talents was. Seizing him by the throat, that first slave said, Pay what you owe. 
And his fellow slave fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me and I will pay you. Sound familiar, those words? Pretty much what the first slave had said to the king. Patience, time, and I'll set the books straight. I'll cover the debt. But he refused. That other slave, he refused, which is the clear indication he's still bookkeeping. In spite of what the king has just done for him, he's still bookkeeping. He refuses. And Jesus said he he went and he threw the slave into prison until he should pay his debt, that hundred denarii, which goes over in the wider slave community like a lead balloon. They make sure word gets back to the king who has that first slave hauled back into the royal court. You wicked slave, he says. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have mercy on your fellow slave as I had mercy on you? I went out of the bookkeeping business for your sad sake. But you, you insist on going right back into business like that. And here comes one of those big, broad, brush strokes as which Jesus tells the parable. It becomes even a little absurd. In anger, his Lord handed the slave over to be tortured until he could pay his entire debt. Now, I'm, I'm not sure how endless torturing could in any way be a fundraiser for repayment of an impossible debt, But again, Jesus is not trying to construct a realistic story here. No, he's trying to drive a point into thick skulls of Peter and the rest of them. And in case they've missed the point, the parable ends with a bit of a blunt instrument. And so my heavenly Father will also do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Bit of a sidebar on Matthew. This parable is unique to this gospel. It doesn't appear in the other three. And when that happens, when Matthew brings forward unique parables, they do tend to be tough, edgy parables with a strong emphasis on actually doing the faith. Put your money where your mouth is. You can't just receive without giving back in return. That's definitely here in this parable. It's very much there in a parable we'll treat a little further into fall, the the parable of the sheep and the goats. Sometimes when Matthew relates a parable that appears in other Gospels, even then there's, there's more edge to it, there's more reckoning in it. Last week Rachel made the point that in his Gospel, Matthew also seems to have a particular interest in tax collectors the great traitorous villains of that society. And he has a very particular interest in the idea that Jesus would extend mercy to tax collectors. It's almost as if he can't believe that he, he who is, according to the the tradition, a, a tax collector himself, that he had been given a second chance. There's also a sense, though, that, that he might be carrying that as a bit of a burden when he lists off the names of the 12 disciples in his gospel 
The only one who's identified by occupation is Matthew, the tax collector. He alone of the gospel writers does that almost as if to say, let me tell you who I am and what I've done and how amazing it is that I am where I am, landed in this company with Jesus. That also may be part of the fact, though, that Matthew takes the doing of the faith so seriously, his memory so tuned to anything Jesus said about the urgency of doing the faith. When he'd been taught, when they'd been taught to pray those words we say every Sunday, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us, this gospel writer, Matthew, took it straight to heart because he knew he'd been forgiven countless trespasses. This hard-edged image of an angry king who tortured an ungrateful slave notwithstanding, I think if you consider the sweep of the whole of the gospel, the whole of the New Testament, in fact, what you see is not a prescriptive punishment for badly behaved people who won't offer forgiveness to one another. What you, what you see is rather a description of the nature of forgiveness and the way in which it looses or binds us up. Here, I think N.T. Wright's comments are typically helpful. He writes, Forgiveness is like the air in your lungs. There's only room for you to inhale the next lungful when you've breathed out the previous one. If you insist on withholding it, refusing to give someone else the kiss of life they may desperately need, you won't be able to take any more in yourself, and you will suffocate very quickly. Yet, if your heart, Bishop Wright says, if your heart is open, able, and willing to forgive others, it also will be open to receive God's own love and forgiveness. It is a kind of a living thing, a dynamic thing. Notice his emphasis, though, on the heart being open and willing. Doesn't mean that our forgiving of others is necessarily easy or fast, particularly not when the hurt goes very deep. It also doesn't mean that there's been a, a full and transformational reconciliation because that requires that the person who has hurt us or breached our trust must also be open and willing, and you can't force that. It is that posture, though, in us, that posture of willingness, even if it cuts across the grain, that tries to hold fast to a willingness and openness to keep moving towards forgiveness. That's what keeps our lungs open, so to speak. Our lungs open to continue to receive forgiveness. To return to that opening little bit, Jesus says to Peter about 77 times, well, just remember... You don't keep count of your own breaths. So just keep breathing forgiveness deeply.
countlessly. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. You've been listening to a St. Benedict's Table podcast. For more information on our church or to provide support for our online work, visit us at stbenedictstable.ca.